time to worship you. And we thank you for ministries like CareNet. We thank you for this church, for the work you've done in our lives. And that last song that we sang, really all that we need is simply to be in your presence. And I trust that in the person of the Holy Spirit, your presence is with us as you speak through me to build us up. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to get back to our series on dealing with conflict and angry birds. Get your Bibles out. Turn to me to Genesis chapter 4. We'll talk about firsts, if this is going to work. We are not having a good day. Can I just cue you, David? We good? Okay. There we now it's working. All right. First. Um can you remember your first kiss? Anybody? I remember my first kiss. It was in the fifth grade. I was in the fifth grade. I was in uh, Mr. Neubacher's class in Rochester, Michigan. And I remember sitting, I have a photographic memory. I was sitting in the back of where I, my seat was, and there was this uh, girl to the right, up, I don't know, four or five, six desks. We had desks back then. I think her name was Holly. She did in the same subdivision that I did. And um, we just kind of started flirting. And it's kind of funny, too. I didn't realize at the time that she was a brunette. I, I find brunettes attractive. I don't find any other hair color attractive. That's why I married a brunette. But um, we were kind of just were flirting. And then that was a time that girls, of course, didn't have cooties, right? And they weren't this thing to be avoided and made fun of and whatever. And so some of us decided that we were going to experience a kiss. And so we went to the far corner of the... the um, playground, and there was this tree. And so you could go behind this tree, nobody could see, and you would kiss. And, I, and she was there, and I was there, and we did this total lame kiss where you just, you know, kind of do that type of thing, you know what I'm talking about? And that was the first kiss. I remember the first kiss. Can you remember the first time that you drove a car by yourself? Like you had your license, and you could drive it by yourself. I remember uh, that I, I was living in Texas. I just got my license, and I remember backing out of the, the driveway and driving down to the park, which was about oh, a mile or two from our house, and it was just this surreal experience. I was driving a car alone, and it was, like, totally cool. <laughs> and now I'm like, kids, would you go to the store and get this for me? I don't want to drive, you know, or would you go run this errand for me, and so on and so forth. I remember the first time we bought a home. And I remember walking up to that home after we had signed the loan and looking at this concrete step, and it just hit me. I own that. <laughs> I really didn't. But I deceived myself because the bank owned it. But this was my house, and this was my, my concrete step. And it was just this surreal experience. Well, when we look at the, the book of Genesis this morning in chapter 4, it is a, a 
book of firsts. If you haven't ever really thought of the book of Genesis, John MacArthur writes this. It's listen, the first birth, which therefore constituted the first family, the first sibling follows soon after with the birth of Abel. We have the first birth, then the first family, the first sibling. We also have the first family disaster. We have in the story of Cain the first crime and the first opportunity for vengeance. We have in the story of Cain the first act of worship, the first sacrifice, the first expression of hypocrisy, the first occasion of false religion, the first act of self-righteousness. The story of Cain then carries with it a lot of firsts. But the main theme of the story of Cain that we will look at this morning is to introduce us to the first unbeliever. Did you realize that? He's the first unbeliever. The story of Cain also reveals to us the establishment of a society which will show us the flow of sin into human history. It also shows us the fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. Namely, the conflict that would exist between the seed of the woman who are believers and the seed of the serpent who are unbelievers. Remember this verse in Genesis 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. This is God speaking to the serpent or to Satan. And there's going to be strife, conflict, between Satan and the woman, meaning Eve, and her offspring, and his offspring. And Scripture tells us in 1 John 3 that we, believers, should not be like Cain, who was what? Of the evil one, the evil one being Satan. And Cain murdered his brother, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So we have the evil deeds of Cain, obviously Cain killed Abel, and Abel's deeds were Righteous, so we have evil or wickedness and righteousness from the very beginning. First, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 4 and look at the story of Cain. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now, granted, a utopia has existed in the Garden of Eden through Adam and Eve's sin, it's shattered. And this is the very next thing that happens, Genesis 4. It says, now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Now as we learn about offense, it's important to understand kind of the, the beginnings of it all. And this is the first offense that we'll see. Now the word new here really refers to, it says, Adam knew his wife, it's sexual intimacy, but it really refers to an intimate relationship that we can have also with our God. We are to know him that intimately. Cain means a formed thing, a creature, something made. And the word can even mean a smith or a refiner or a craftsman who makes something. And Eve names her son Cain, the one that was made with the help of the Lord. And you can't help but thinking that in Genesis 3.15... We know that there, will be off, that there will be conflict, but also you might remember that from that conflict will come a redeemer, someone who will crush the head of the serpent. And you can't help but thinking, maybe Eve is thinking that this is going to be Cain, the firstborn. 
Now Abel was born, and his name in the, Greek, in the Hebrew Hebel means a mere breath. Now we very, see very clearly on throughout the Bible, I want you to just listen to Matthew 23, 35 to 36, and how Abel is remembered. So that upon you, this is Jesus speaking, may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. He's speaking to the Pharisees. But Abel is, is called what? Righteous. In Hebrews 11:4, we read this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, meaning his offering. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So now Cain has died, but he was considered righteous. So where would Cain be? In heaven. Okay? In other words, through his faithful obedience to God's command, as we will see, God applied the sacrifice of Christ that would happen 2,000 years in the future to Abel. Why? Because he responded in faith and he was commended as righteous. Who else responded in faith and was commended as righteous? Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. Okay? So from the very beginning, we see that the righteous shall live by, you are justified by faith in God's sight. Now, verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, in the course of time, what does that mean? Well, it indicates that bringing offerings to God have been passed down from Adam and Eve by probably a command from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do for them? He provided for them because when he, they sinned, he came to meet them and they were hiding from him because of their shame and their sin. And what were they using to cover themselves? Well, leaves. So God said, no, no, no. So he performed the first blood sacrifice. He killed an animal and provided clothing for them to cover themselves. Setting the standard that there would always need to be the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. That was obviously passed on to Cain and Abel. That's what it means in the course of time. Well, it says Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. And what we can notice is the text doesn't say that he brought the first or the best of a given crop. It just says he brought the fruit of the ground. But more significantly, what did he not bring? A blood sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. What that means is Cain didn't really recognize himself as a sinner in need of a sacrifice. You follow me? So most likely God instructed them to bring an animal sacrifice. There had already been a demonstration of the need for substitutionary death to cover the sinner back in chapter 3, verse 21, when God sacrificed the animal and clothed them. But what we see here again is Cain having no recognition that he's a sinner. He's bringing what he has produced out of the ground. 
Now, there are only two ways that you can approach God. You approach God offering him what you've achieved, or you approach God realizing that you deserve death for your sin, and you just substitute to die in your place. Cain's offering, what we're reading here, it's the first example of self-righteous worship, because he thinks he himself is good enough to come to God on his terms. It's hypocritical, because he's a sinner and God is holy. It's also false worship. So it's self-righteous, hypocritical, false worship. Because you think about it, there are only three ways. You, are, you and I are worshipers. There's only three ways you worship God. Either you worship God truly his way on his terms, or you do what Cain is doing. You worship God falsely on your own terms, or you worship another false god. Now it says, Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now this is obviously in a contrast to what Cain did. Abel brought the first and the best of the best. And the emphasis appears to be here on the quality of that offering. Cain brought something which reflected his own achievement, a symbol of his self-righteousness. Abel brought or brings the best offerings of an animal as a symbol of his own need to have his sin covered by the death of an innocent substitute. And it, obviously, the Lord says, had regard for Abel and his offering. Now, what does that mean? That he had regard for Abel and his offering? Well, it means that he accepted it. He accepted the offering. And he had regard for two points for Abel and for his offering. So, first of all, God had regard for Abel, that means for his heart. His offering, the fact he offered what God required. And his behavior was righteous because he did what God had said to be done. But for Cain, in his offering, he had no regard. So God found Cain's worship unacceptable. And he had no regard for two points. For Cain, in his offering. For Cain's heart was evil, we well, established that. And it was manifest in his offering. Cain offered to God what God did not require. And so here's the first example of false worship. And the result is very telling. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Notice, is he sorry for his disobedience? Is there any remorse or contrition? There is nothing there. In fact, he becomes angry. And he tells us he was so angry that his face fell. This is a man whose anger has reached the point of despair. And what Cain has allowed is his anger to go unchecked, underground, into his heart. And of course, what do we call that? Anger gone underground is what? Bitterness. His anger was so great that his countenance fell. He was in despair. And you only get to that point if you wrestle with self-pity. So he's angry, and he's full of self-pity. And that is a bad combination. Can you relate to that, though? Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? 
Why is your face fallen? Now, folks, when you read this, God is all-knowing. He is not seeking information. He, like, he knows why Cain is angry, but he's initiating a conversation to get Cain to look at his heart to understand his motives. He's asking Cain to see what he sees in Cain's heart. See what I see, Cain, a slow, boiling rage against who? Me, and then your brother. And what did his brother do, by the way, to him? Absolutely nothing. Verse seven, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And this is a very, very important, if you were probably highlight a verse in Genesis 4, it would probably be this verse, because it is the most difficult verse to be translated in all of Genesis. What God is saying here is this. Cain, you have a choice to make. It doesn't have to be this way. If you do what is right, if you repent, your heart will be cleansed, and you will feel the joy of repentance, the joy of forgiveness, and the joy of obedience. You can translate the word accepted to be forgiven. So God is offering Cain what? Forgiveness. If you repent of your sin, come to me my way, you will find forgiveness. Have you ever been committed to sin, been under such guilt, and your life has been so horrible, then when you finally humble yourself, confess your sin, repent, and come to God, and you experience the, that release of guilt, and what happens is you feel joy, right? You feel better. That's what God is offering here. So we see that the very heart of God is one who is a savior. He's an evangelist offering Cain forgiveness. If he would come to him on his terms in faith, he would have been considered what? Righteous. What is amazing about God is he's reaching out to Cain despite being what? God is offended right now. And he reaches out. When you get offended, is that what you do? These are things that we must learn. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. Here is the choice, Cain. Do well or don't do well. I, I, I picture myself having these conversations with my kids. Here's the choice. Obey and it'll be well for you. Disobey in the Board of Education. And sin, notice, is described like a lion. It's crouching, waiting to pounce on its prey. If you don't do well what God is saying here, if you make the wrong choice, Cain, your whole life will be a battle to master sin. Think about that. I mean, that is quite a choice that he makes or that, that is presented to him. Will you humble yourself, repent of your sin, turn from it, come to me and experience joy, or reject my offer and choose a life filled battling to master sin? It seems like an easy choice when you think of it that way, right? 
And by the way, the sin is compared, it's crouching, it says, at the door. It's like a lion. And what does a lion do when it crouches? What's the next thing that happens? It attacks and it will tear you apart. And that's what he's saying. Sin wants to tear you apart as you battle with it. I don't know about you, but I tire of battling with my sin. And I have the Spirit of God within me. Verse 8. Cain spoke to his Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the fact that it, the word spoke is significant here, that means that Cain had a plan, which is another way of saying that this is premeditated murder. Here's a choice. What's your choice going to be? He chooses poorly. And why did Cain kill Abel? Because it was God who offended Cain when he rejected his offering. See, Cain's actions, and and I want you to hear me, they show a heart that was unable to handle the truth. Cain would not blame himself. You ever be in conflict with your spouse? You know you're in the wrong, but you dig your heels in, and what do you do? You blame. And this is what is happening here. Cain was unable to handle the truth, to be accountable for his sin, and to repent. His understanding was so darkened by sin at this point in time. His thinking patterns were so rational that he kills his own brother, who was completely innocent and was not the cause of the offense. And the Lord says to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? God knew what was going on. Again, God's not seeking information. And I want you to see this about God. He is giving Cain what? Another opportunity to come clean, to be honest. He did this with Adam and Eve. When they ate of the fruit, and they became, they were incinerated within them, he didn't immediately punish them. What did he do? He walked in the garden, and he called for them. And he asked them, what did you do? Who told you this? And Adam does exactly what Cain does. He blames God, the woman, and Eve. The woman you put here did this. Okay? This is what Cain is doing. Watch. He says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, first of all, Cain had fled the scene of the crimes. He killed his brother and fled. And now Cain tried to, tries to hide his sin. He said, why should I know where my brother is, right? Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. In other words, verse 10 is saying, you cannot hide your sin from me. And we need to hear that. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to the ground for me. Every sin cries out to God for vengeance. Every sin. Verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Well, just as the ground was cursed in Genesis 3, right? So it would no longer easily produce a crop. Now watch this. For Cain, a worker of the ground... He is cursed from the ground. 
Verse 12, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. It would no longer produce for him. That's what this curse is. He could plant all he wanted. He could water all he wanted. What would come up? Nothing. Whatever he would plant, it would not grow. And so consequently, he'd become a fugitive and a wanderer. And all this came from Cain's hand. He was responsible for his actions. Now, he won't see that. He refuses to see that, and he blames other people. But God won't allow that. And the punishment fits the crime. And there are consequences. It's like when you have a child that refuses to accept see reality, accept what they did, and you impose consequences and they're still defined, like, nope, you're not going to skirt this. There'll be consequences. This is what God is doing. And there's a second thing that's going on here in verse 12. It's a direct commentary on the offering of Cain. God would see that he never, ever was able to make another offering of the fruit of the ground. It was never acceptable in the first place. And God says, I will never let you do that again. No more, in other words, no more hypocritical offerings. Now, what does this tell us about God's sin and judgment? Well, God obviously takes sin very seriously. And we read this, sometimes we think his judgments seem harsh. Well, just as the woman, Eve, usurped man's authority, Adam, in the garden and led the way into sin, what was her punishment? Remember that? She was given over to the misery of competition with her rightful head. Remember, Satan went directly to the woman, not to the man who was the head. She sinned first. The husband who was there apparently allowed it to go on. He then sinned, but because he was the head, once he ate, then sin entered into them, and he was the one that the Lord went to to give an account. But the punishment for her was that she would always be in constant competition to be the head or to lead the marriage relationship. And how has that turned out for women? This is why you nag. This is why you criticize your husband. Yeah. And how's that turn out for your husbands? Because the, Adam failed to lead. If you don't lead, and if you lead well, you have, always have the opportunity for your wife to criticize you, to nag you. This is why you must be spirit-filled in a marriage. It just doesn't work unless you are, God is spirit-filling you. But that's the competition that she is wrestling with. And by the way, now that's the competition that Cain will deal with with sin. Her desire will be to rule her husband, but he will rule over her. And there's been ungodly domination of male over female ever since that time. God gave the man male headship, the trump card of male domination. And he's ruled justly at times and unjustly. But that is justice in God's eyes. It's a measure for measure response to Eve's sin. Now we go to the story of Cain. Cain has worked the ground. He was wired that way. Now he would never be able to work the ground. The very thing he was designed to do. How frustrating would that be for him? That too is justice in God's eyes. A measure for measure response 
to his sin. Verse 13, this is what you know, stubborn children, this is what unbelievers do. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Again, there is no sorrow, no contrition, no humility, no repentance for his sin. Cain clearly doesn't see himself as a sinner in need of a savior. And what comes out of his heart, as we disgustingly read verse 13 and 14, is self-pity, blame, and selfishness. Cain's questioning of God's decision is an assault on God's fairness, kindness, and justice. In other words, he's saying this, God, you've got to be kidding me. You can't be that hard on me. And this is what unbelievers do when they hear the message of judgment. That's not fair. That's not right. God can't do that. There can be no hell. Everyone goes to heaven. And sickingly, Cain holds on to his sin, even if it means he has to live an unfulfilled life of a wanderer under divine death sentence. This is a sinner's obstinate rebellion, rebelliousness. And so what he does here is what we all do and our children do to us is to reinforce his resentment, he recites the curse back to God as if he can convince God to change his mind. Your children ever do that to you? And did that work? But we do it to God. But just look how distorted his thinking is. He blames God for his predicament. You have driven me away from the ground, he says. No, Cain, by your choice and your actions, you are responsible. And the second part of the curse is being a fugitive or wanderer. Now think about this. That means that Cain will never stop anywhere. He will never be able to do anything but wander and eke out a survival. Now, can you imagine how tough it would be to live like that back then? Because it's not like he can go to the grocery store and buy some food. He has to find an animal and kill it, or he's got to find some fruit that's fallen from the tree or somewhere, find some vegetation, because he can't produce a crop. And he'll be wandering, he'll be a fugitive. He's the only one, by the way, at this point in time, out of all the population who is out on his own. Again, where are you going to get food? You can't grow anything, you don't have any animals. And that's not living, that's barely surviving. And since Cain rejected God's offer of forgiveness, he also forfeits a relationship with God. He was in a relationship with God, right? They were, they were walking together, talking. He gives that up too. So he then again also blames God for driving him away from his face. And he is forced to hide from God, just like his parents hid from God in the Garden of Eden when they sinned. So Cain has to hide from everybody else, hide from God. He's a wanderer and a fugitive. And he adds this, it'll come about whoever finds me will kill me. Now, why does he say that? Well, 
Here's the deal, if you ever thought this through. Because the current population of humanity at the time was all related to who? Cain and Abel, right? This tells us that the population was, was probably growing. And in Cain's mind, this is probably what he's thinking. I'm going to live a long time. Now, how long did people live back then? 80 years was a child, or an infant almost. You're living hundreds and hundreds of years. So I'm going to live a long time. Other people will be born. They will grow, and they will have children. They will all know about me, the killer of Abel, because they're going to be my relatives. And by the way, Cain would marry, and who would he have to marry? Think about this, a sister. And so there would just be this family multiplication or proliferation through the years, and everybody would want to kill who? Cain. Here's the other thing. Through Adam and Eve and Cain, the planet would be populated. And here's the sad reality of it all, if you sit there and think about this. By the time you get through that first generation of, from Adam and Eve, the people are so bad what does God have to do? Destroy everybody but eight people in a flood. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Edom. Eden. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, you know, well, why didn't God just take Cain's life, right? Because doesn't the scripture, and doesn't God require a life for a life? Genesis 9, 6, he institutes that. Now, the Bible does teach capital punishment, but it's only applied through a duly constituted government. It's never a part of personal vengeance. So to be put to death by the blood avenger as a means of punishment is opposed to the law of God. And God has always said that what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, Romans 12, 19. But I want you to notice this in verses 15 and 16. Notice God's grace, compassion, kindness, and provision. God had already pled with Cain to make a right choice, but Cain refused. Now God gives him a curse, which was another opportunity for Cain to say, I have sinned and I am sorry. If you're going to let me live, then I repent. But Cain doesn't even do that. So in an act of grace, God says this, I'm going to make sure nobody takes your life. I myself am going to put a mark on you that signifies that I am your protector. Did you see that? I will protect you. Even though you offend me, I will protect you. I mean, even though Cain's sin offends God, we see God himself protecting this wicked sinner. And look what this story teaches us about God. God goes from being the creator of Cain to a friend of Cain to a potential savior of Cain, which of course Cain rejects, to an interrogator of Cain, to an investigator of Cain, to a prosecutor of Cain, to a judge of Cain, and now he is a protector of Cain. Now, this teaches us a lot about offense. Let's talk about the anatomy of offense. And I'll put these up here so you can write them down if you want to. 
But first of all, it all starts with the heart. That's where it all begins, which is why Proverbs 4.23 says, you heard me say this over and over again, above all else, do what? Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Abel guarded his heart. Cain did not. You live from your heart. What you say and what you do reveals your heart. Number two, there is an inevitability that offense will happen. Luke 17, 1 says, Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. If I know that I live in a world where I'm going to be offended, then I had better make sure I do point one, guard my heart. And when it happens, what we see in the story of Cain is there is a result of anger when you're offended. So it's very normal to be angry. But in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, it says this, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not the sun go down your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Peter Lord wrote a book called Hearing God. And he had a, uh, has a son that at that time was living with him. And he had some rules for the house. And one of the rules was, was that he couldn't like, sneak out of the house at night and go do something. Well, he caught his son doing that. He saw that he had heard a noise and saw the, investigated, saw the windows open. His son went out in disobedience. And he, Peter Lord was angry. It took him two hours as he waited for his son to come home before he worked through his anger and he could hear from God. And God said this to him, show your son grace. But in order to get to that point of hearing God, he had to work through his anger. Now that's normal anger, that's, that's a good healthy thing to do. It's okay to be angry, there's a thing that's called righteous anger. But as Ephesians remind us, if you don't deal with that anger, and the anger goes underground and turns into bitterness, you've given the devil a foothold, an opportunity. And that leads to the fourth thing. You're guarding your heart, you're going to be offended, there's going to be anger, but then you have a choice. And really that choice is you need to submit to God. And I always like Joshua 24, 15. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. You know how it goes, right? Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose to submit to God. And if you don't do that, then the next thing that happens is that anger goes underground and it's bitterness. That's the next point here. Again, if you don't deal with the unresolved anger, it will turn to bitterness. At that point in time, the next thing happens, and you get, as we saw with Cain, distorted thinking. Unbelievers, Ephesians 4, 17 and 19 says this, they walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Does not Ephesians 4, 17 and 19 aptly describe Genesis 4 and the story of Cain? Your thinking gets distorted. You lose touch with reality. You're unable to handle the truth, which results in the next thing, and that you assign blame. It's never me. I remember being in an argument at one point in time. I can't remember what it was about. Eric and I were in an argument, as couples tend to do. 
And I sure had my part, I can't remember, but she had her part, and it was very obvious what it was. And as I was talking to her, I realized, and I said this to her, this is going nowhere because the problem isn't in this room, because she simply wouldn't see her part in it. And the same thing can be said about me. We have to assign blame. That's the American pastime, right? It's what we do. Really, what it means is we refuse to take responsibility for our actions. That's why it says, we need to be reminded of this in Romans 14, 10, and 12. Why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You will have to give an account for your actions. You'll be forced to take responsibility. So you might as well start practicing it now. Because each of us will have to give an account of himself to God. Verse 12. Now that results in, see here, after you go through all this, evil deeds. Retaliation. Now, for Cain, it was taking someone's life. For you, it may be slandering somebody when you're offended. Or holding a grudge against them. Or even physically striking somebody. But that's what happens when you are offended if you don't deal with it right. That's what the unbelieving world does. They love darkness rather than the light, and their deeds are evil. Just like God offered another opportunity to repent, there's another choice given. Are you going to choose to repent or not? That's the ninth point. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live. Cain would not choose life. So choose to repent. It's not too late. Don't stay in that state of offense. But what we see with unbelievers, what we see in Cain, is we can reject God's judgment. And this is really telling, Matthew 25, 30. There will be people in hell experiencing the consequences of their sin that will still reject God's judgment. Did you know that? How do we know that? Because Matthew 25, 30 says this, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in hell there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, the weeping is because they are sorrow for their sin and they're going to be spending eternity paying it off. The gnashing of teeth means what? They are still angry at God they refuse to accept the judgment and the consequence, and that's their life forever. Angry at God, rejecting his judgment. Talk about unable to handle the truth, right? What a miserable existence. And as in Cain's part, and maybe you experienced this in your relationship with God, you're married, I know you've experienced it when you're in conflict with your spouse. When you're in conflict with your spouse, is there an intimacy there? No. Cain was driven away from the presence of God. That's what sin does to us. It just hinders our intimacy, which is why David wrote, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. This is what the sin with Bathsheba. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. That's the anatomy of offense from Genesis 4. That's the first offense. Everything began. Cain killed Abel because he was 
offended. And he didn't handle his offense well, and we need to learn from him. That is why I believe this story is in there. And so you have to ask yourself, how am I or how are you handling offense? Because all these things, you've experienced variations in, in, in differing levels of intensity of these 11 steps of an anatomy of an offense. And so guard your heart above all else. Let's pray. Father, as we leave this morning, we thank you for our time. We thank you that we can know that as we sang this morning, you are all we need. And may we find our deepest satisfaction in you. Lord, expose the areas of our lives that we are blind to, where we are offended, where we are hurt, and we're nursing a grudge or a hurt or a pain. May we deal with that, cleansing ourselves. May we not be like Cain. Thank you for this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a blessed day. And please, please feel free to go back to the CareNet booth back there and talk to Tracy. God bless you. I will see you next week.